Welcome to Counter Apologetics. Welcome to Counter Apologetics. I'm your host, Emerson Green, and today we'll be discussing Hume on the argument from design. David Hume never lived to see the publication of The Origin of Species. He didn't know about evolution by natural selection. Yet he delivered what many consider to be the most powerful critique of the design argument in his Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion. He did not, however, provide a robust alternative explanation of biology whereas Darwin provided the first non-theistic explanation of adaptation in the history of human thought that persuaded the great majority of scientists and philosophers. Although atheism might have been logically tenable before Darwin, writes Richard Dawkins, Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. End quote. I've mentioned this before, but I became an atheist before I believed in Darwinism or understood it. In the words of philosopher of biology Eliot Sober, the design argument's fatal flaw does not depend upon seeing the merits of Darwinian theory. End quote. Maybe if I had lived before Darwin, I would have eventually landed on theism, or even polytheism. Before 1859, design would be a pretty natural way of accounting for the biological organization and complexity of the living world though, as we'll see, it was possible to undermine the argument completely without a thoroughgoing alternative. To quote Sober, Hume's dialogues did not put a stop to the argument. Part of the problem is that Hume has no serious alternative explanation of the phenomena he discusses. End quote. However, that doesn't change the fact that, quote, after the onslaught of Hume's corrosive skepticism, the design argument was in shambles and remained that way forever after. End quote. Those who want to infer a designer from nature have a major critique to wrestle with, deists and polytheists, as well as theists. Hume's Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion was published in 1779, three years after his death. You can imagine why he wanted it out posthumously. In the book, the debate is carried out in dialogue form by three main characters, Cleanthes, Demea, and Philo. And though all three are in agreement that God exists, they disagree on the nature of the deity and how we can acquire knowledge of his attributes or existence. Philo, the skeptic, is the character who probably best represents Hume's own thought. Philo didn't think we could prove God's existence through the observation of nature, as supporters of the design argument believe. This was radical thought at the time. As I mentioned, the dialogues were published posthumously originally without Hume's name, or even the publisher's name. So here's Cleanthes, setting up the argument from design. Look round the world. Contemplate the whole and every part of it. You will find it to be nothing but one great machine, subdivided into an infinite number of lesser machines, which again admit of subdivisions to a degree beyond what human senses and faculties can trace and explain. All these various machines, and even their most minute parts, are adjusted to each other with an accuracy which ravishes into admiration all men who have ever contemplated them. 
The curious adapting of means to ends, throughout all nature, resembles exactly, though it much exceeds, the productions of human contrivance, of human designs, thought, wisdom, and intelligence. Since, therefore, the effects resemble each other, we are led to infer, by all the rules of analogy, that the causes also resemble, and that the author of nature is somewhat similar to the mind of man, though possessed of much larger faculties, proportioned to the grandeur of the work which he has executed. By this argument a posteriori, and by this argument alone, do we prove at once the existence of a deity, and his similarity to human mind and intelligence. Arguments for design reason from certain features of the world, complexity, organization, structure, apparent teleology, to the conclusion that those features are evidence that the world is a product of intentional design. The conclusion that Cleanthes draws from his observations of machine-like complexity and order is that the natural world must have been created by an intelligent designer. This designer must have an intelligence proportionate to the magnitude and grandeur of their creation. And the best candidate who fits such a description is the orthodoxly conceived monotheistic god. In other words, Cleanthes draws an analogy between natural things and human artifacts, and on the basis of this analogy, concludes not only that God exists, but that God is benevolent, omniscient, and omnipotent. Hume's criticism is aimed at the inference to a designer. Supposing that a designer exists on the basis of our observations of natural objects, and their analogy to human artifacts. When two objects are similar effects, say a house and another house, we're on solid footing when inferring a similar cause. From similar effects, we infer similar causes. So to the extent that two objects are similar effects, we have grounds for inferring a similar cause. What Hume pointed out is that human artifacts and natural objects are not similar effects. The similarities are outnumbered by the dissimilarities, by a wide margin. So we don't actually have much grounds for inferring a similar cause. And besides, inferring a similar cause would not lead one to the orthodoxly conceived monotheistic god. Instead, we'd be stuck with an imperfect designer, or designers, finite in their power, knowledge, and goodness. Human artifacts are really nothing like plants and animals. Watches are not like meerkats in any serious regard. So the claim that similar effects arise from similar causes doesn't support the design inference, since the living systems in question bear little similarity to human artifacts. The gap between human artifacts and natural objects is vast. The dissimilarities outnumber any similarities. Any resemblance is so slight that all reasoning on this basis is, as Hume put it, both uncertain and useless. Similar effects generally have similar causes. Of course, any reasonable person would accept this principle. But its adoption gives us little reason to conclude that there's a designer of a meerkat. A watch is nothing like a meerkat, so why would we infer a similar cause 
for both watches and meerkats when they're so disanalogous as objects. They're not similar effects. So why would anyone think they have a similar cause? To quote Nigel Warburton, Arguments from analogy rely on there being pronounced similarities between the two things being compared. If the similarities are relatively superficial, then any conclusion drawn on their basis will be weak and will require independent evidence or argument as support. If we examine a house, then it's quite reasonable to conclude from its structure that it has been designed by a builder or an architect. This is because we have had experiences of similar effects, other buildings, being brought about by this sort of cause, being designed by a builder or an architect. So far we are on firm ground when we use an argument from analogy. But when the entire universe is compared to something like a house, the dissimilarity between the things compared is so striking that any conclusions based on the alleged analogy between the two can be nothing more than guesswork. End quote. The design argument is ultimately based on a principle of analogy. Similar causes beget similar effects. So an observed effect, whether it's the eye, or a tulip, or the parameters of nature, cannot be judged to arise from similar causes as that of a house or a painting, since paintings and the parameters of nature have basically nothing in common. The dissimilarities are pretty striking, actually. Watches have watchmakers, but since watches don't have much in common with meerkats and eyeballs, there's not much reason to suppose there is an eyeball maker. So far we have reason to reject the argument from design, because there's a disanalogy between the process by which something like a tulip comes about, and the process by which something like a house or a painting comes about. We already have knowledge of effects like a painting or a house, coming from causes like builders, architects, painters, and so on. Sure, similar causes beget similar effects, but the weaker the analogy between the two effects being compared, the weaker the analogy between the cause being inferred. So now let's take a look at the causes. Even though the analogy between a house and a pangolin is spectacularly weak, let's suppose they did arise from a similar cause. After all, houses and pangolins are both complex, they're both well-ordered. That's about the end of the things they have in common, but it's something. So let's say they arose by similar means. Houses have builders and architects, intelligent agents who design and construct the building. Similar effects similar causes. However, Philo points out that this crucial principle of the design argument would not lead Cleanthes to a designer who is perfect and infinite. From similar effects we infer similar causes, so an imperfect designer with a finite amount of power and knowledge would be the better inference. Further support for this comes with the fact that nature is full of imperfection. Birth defects, forest fires, mental illnesses, and all the suffering endogenous to the system, suffering that's built into the ordinary workings of nature, especially regarding suffering that's not a perversion of nature, but rather as a part of how things ordinarily work, we might wonder if the designer is malevolent, but limited skill, knowledge, or power would explain things at least as well. 
Taking the imperfections of nature to be a reflection of the shortcomings of the designer is a much safer inference than an omnibenevolent designer, infinite in power and knowledge, plus some ad hoc hypothesis explaining why he couldn't do any better than relentless predation and cancer in children. A limited, imperfect designer, once again, is the more natural inference if we're adopting this principle of similar causes begetting similar effects, and further supposing that watches and lions have more in common than not. So far I've been speaking of a designer. Those who make an argument from design are often monotheists. But most complicated, large-scale human projects are achieved as a result of teams of designers and builders working together. Polytheism has to be a serious option on the table, since that would be the more accurate conclusion to draw if we're faithful to the principle of analogy that this whole argument is based upon. Actually, several designers working cross-purposes might not be a bad explanation of natural evil. So, if we grant that a given natural object is comparable to a human artifact, a big if, then we should infer an imperfect multitude of finite designers who are perhaps not terribly moved by our suffering, or are working cross-purposes, or are limited in skill. We've never encountered an infinite designer, nor do the imperfections of nature suggest an infinite designer. Hume seems to have never retreated from his view stated in the inquiry concerning human understanding that God is, quote, a being so remote and incomprehensible who bears much less analogy to any other being in the universe than the sun to a wax candle, and who discovers himself only by some faint traces or outlines, beyond which we have no authority to ascribe to him any attribute or perfection. When we see a house, we naturally conclude that it had an architect or builder, because this is precisely that species of effect which we have experienced to proceed from that species of cause. But when we consider a tulip, for instance, things are very different. In this case, we have experience of a unique effect, the flower. We have no experience at all of its cause beyond the generation that directly preceded it. So, how are we supposed to draw a reliable inference when we have no species of cause and species of effect that are conjoined? We already know about the process by which paintings, for instance, are produced. That's what the crucial inference is actually based on. We already know where paintings come from, so that way when we see the painting and do think, oh, there must have been a painter, there's not just a straight inference from painting to painter, we already have knowledge of the process by which paintings are made. We know where they come from. That's what the crucial inference is actually based on. It's obviously true that if we saw a watch, or a painting, or a house, we would infer a designer. A watchmaker, a painter, an architect. But that analogy doesn't work for biological organisms. When you look at the causal history of watches, paintings, and buildings, you observe the intentional production of the features in question. 
you know where watches, paintings, and buildings come from. You already know about how one event follows the other. When you do the same for cats, chameleons, oak trees, and tulips, you do not. That's what's under discussion. There's no analogy here because we don't have experience with those things in the same way we have experience with watches and paintings. Sure, we infer a painter from a painting, but why would we infer a tree-er from a tree, or a tulip-er from a tulip? We didn't actually infer the existence of the painter from the painting alone. We already knew about the production of paintings and where they come from. With that background knowledge, we go on inferring painters from paintings, but we already had the answer from experience with paintings and painters. That's not the case with nature. As Philo puts it, Our ideas reach no further than our experience. We have no experience of divine attributes and operations. End quote. The defender of the argument from design here might say I'm being too narrow. Maybe we don't need a conjunction of causes and their effects in this regard to make the design inference here. We do have a general experience of order, harmony, structure, complexity, and so on. When we observe these features, we infer that there was an intelligent designer. Similar effects arise from similar causes. However, the vast majority of the order and complexity we observe in nature is not from watches and houses and paintings. Those things are a very narrow subset of the total order, complexity, and structure and so on that we actually observe in nature. Human artifacts make up a tiny, insignificant fraction of the examples of complexity in order. The vast, overwhelming majority of the time when we observe those things, we have no experience of a designer cause. Demea, pushing back against Philo, claims that we should think that a mind, an intelligent designer, is bestowing order on nature. How can order spring from anything which doesn't perceive the order which it's bestowing? Order comes from minds. Philo replies, quote, You need only look around you to satisfy yourself with regard to this question. A tree bestows order and organization on that tree which springs from it, without knowing the order. An animal, in the same manner, on its offspring. A bird, on its nest. And instances of this kind are even more frequent in the world than those of order which arises from reason and contrivance. To say that all this order in animals and vegetables proceeds ultimately from design is begging the question. Nor can that great point be ascertained otherwise than by proving a priori, both that order is, from its nature, inseparably attached to thought, and that it can never, of itself, or from original unknown principles, belong to matter. Arguments from analogy rely on there being similarities between the two things being compared. If the similarities are relatively superficial, then any conclusion drawn on their basis will be weak, uncertain, and useless. And if we did suppose a given natural thing was similar enough to a human artifact, then we should infer an imperfect multitude of finite designers. So the inference to one designer, 
infinite in his power, knowledge, and benevolence, is unjustified even if we grant that a good analogy is being drawn in the first place. We also can't ignore the fact that the process by which a watch comes about is well known. The inference from watch to watchmaker is based in large part on our pre-existing knowledge of that species of effect coming from that species of cause. If we're truly committed to the principle of analogy at the heart of the argument from design, we should believe in a finite, imperfect designer. Actually, we should believe in a team of finite, imperfect designers. However, that's only if we grant the idea that the things being compared are similar. Similar effects arise from similar causes, but these are not similar effects. It's a bad analogy. A human artifact like a watch is really not like the expansion rate of the universe, or the eye. The dissimilarities vastly outnumber the similarities. They're not similar effects, so there's no basis to infer a similar cause. Or, more precisely, to the extent that they are similar effects, we have grounds for inferring a similar cause. They're not similar effects, so we don't have much grounds for inferring a similar cause. Further, inferring a similar cause would not lead one to the orthodoxly conceived monotheistic god. We'd be stuck with an imperfect designer, or designers, who were finite in their power, knowledge, and goodness. I should mention that we didn't cover every humane criticism of the design argument today. Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion is a rich text. I really recommend you just read the dialogues yourself. It's not that long. It's clearly written. Hume is a famously good writer. Plus, it remains highly relevant. There are many strands of atheist thought that originate with Hume. And the argument from design has not vanished, as you're no doubt aware. Creationists and ID proponents still make the design argument even though Darwin gave us the resources to explain biology without a designer, as have many other great thinkers since his time. But even believers who accept the scientific biological paradigm make the design argument in the realm of physics, the fine-tuning argument being the most prominent example. Hume's caustic skepticism can be of great service to those who want to engage the fine-tuning argument as well as the persisting creationist-slash-ID versions of the argument from design. He also just casually destroys skeptical theism in like a throwaway paragraph, so that was pretty cool. Okay, that's all I have for you today. I have new patrons to thank. Brant Ronning, Dalton Broadway, and Luis Fernando Rodriguez. Thank you, Brant, Dalton, and Luis. Your support is much appreciated, as is the support of all my patrons and the legendary Patron Hall of Fame. Phil Stillwell, a hoopy fruit who knows where his towel is, Grim Frenzy, Pre-Nifty, Richard Crossan, and... Rory B. Murkowski. And you can support this show on a per-episode basis at patreon.com counter where you can get early access to every episode and access to bonus episodes. If you don't have the money to support on Patreon, but you still want to infer that a good designer exists from a giant death machine called nature, you can follow me on Twitter, subscribe on YouTube, leave a five-star review, or tell your friends about the podcast. You can also subscribe to and leave a review of our sister show, Walden Pod. Our theme music was written and performed by the band Whalers. The song is called Magic Tricks and was used with permission. Thank you for joining me today. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll talk to you next time.